Welcome to the Zen Stoic Podcast, where we take philosophies of Zen and Stoicism that have been helping people for thousands of years, and we bring them into modern discussions to create mental wellness and vitality. Welcome back, everybody, to the Zen Stoic Podcast. This is your host, Victor Pierantoni. I'm here with a special guest. I have Larry Karnas. He is a member of the Zen Stoic Dojo. He has interest and he practices the Eastern philosophies as well as martial arts. Um, so I'm really, really glad to have Larry here on the show because he has been incredibly helpful to other dojo members. And I've learned a significant amount from him in the short time that, uh, that we've been interacting. So Larry, thank you so much for being here on the Zen Stoic Podcast. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for the invite. Absolutely, man. So uh, you, you've definitely helped me see things in a different way just on some of your comments and, and analysis alone on some of our, our topics and, and posts on the Zen Stoic Dojo. So I wanted to first ask you about, uh, for a lot of the listeners here, how you learned about Buddhism and the impact that it's had on your life. Wow, that's a, that's a good question. It was not intentional. It was... Um, I allow myself to be just to be led by where my interests seem to take me. And yes. so as a teenager, for um, various reasons, I ended up in a karate dojo. And I'm old enough that that was sort of the pre-Bruce Lee rage. Uh, so I got there a couple of years before that. Yeah, well, <laughs> like I said. <laughs> um, and at the same point in time, I also had in the back of my mind this interest in how Easterners approach religion, philosophy, uh, Mm -hmm. martial arts. Um, An interest in that, which is very different from how Westerners approach um, philosophy, religion, martial arts. And I found myself with what little I knew even then, much more comfortable with the Eastern approach than the Western approach. And I'm sure the two work together to help um, you know, grow my interest. As I did more martial arts, I became more interested in philosophy. And, and of course, it worked the other way as well. Yes, absolutely. And what, what did you notice some of the major differences were uh, between the Eastern and Western approach? And what gravitated you towards uh, the Eastern approach when it came to your practice? Well, from a philosophical point of view, um, a, cu- a couple of things come to mind. Um, was interested in the whole idea of meditation, but couldn't find anybody who could teach it to me. Uh, yes. The Western approach, the Judeo-Christian approach, as I understand, is more oriented around prayer. Um, and when I was in school, and I grew up in a Christian tradition, and I don't think it's relevant to say which one, so I won't. Yes. Um, the examples of prayer that were given to me were more along the lines of, oh, God, please give me this, please give me that, um, mm. as opposed to, thank you for giving me this body, you know, a mind, the, you know, the, the fact that I'm born in a, in a country where rule of law and opportunity abound, where mm. your God-given talents can be employed to uh, help you achieve your goals and to help you better yourself and and your fellow human being. Um, So it seemed to me like a lot of the examples I was being given in my Judeo-Christian upbringing were really more just, um, just an example of just, you know, almost laziness. Hey God, do this for me so I don't have to. Whereas in the East, the approach is very different. Mm. You know, the the approach isn't so much affirming all of these things, but questioning everything. Yes. And uh, in the tradition I grew up in, the Judeo-Christian um, tradition I grew up in, questioning anything uh, could get you punished. 
<laughs> and yes, in, I've and, definitely had that experience before in, yeah, <laughs> in my childhood in, as well. <laughs> in the Eastern view, uh, at least in a, in a well-taught Eastern um, institution, uh, you should question everything. Yes. So the only way you can truly understand something is to bring it out in the open and dissect it, throw away all the irrelevant bits, and then take a look at what's left. Yes. And when you can't do that, you can't grow. Yes. Absolutely true. I think it's um, it's really interesting the difference in perspective there because one of which, especially when we we think about things from the Zen Stoic perspective, right, which we're basically bringing in those two philosophies and and using them for for a modern era, like taking the logic and reasoning from Stoicism as well as the presence and intuition from Zen Buddhism. And one of the things that's even talked about in Stoicism is how it's not it, you become poor not by having less, but by desiring more. <laughs> and <laughs> I always thought that was a super interesting way of looking at it, especially with the example that you gave here, um, where it's God, please give me this, please give me that, versus thank you mm-hmm. for what I already do have, and and for for this life, and for this body, and for this mind, um, which is the the place to start, right? If if I'm if I'm referencing back to any of the times that. I've been coaching people in their businesses or in their personal lives. That is literally the thing that we always come back to. It's, it's not, you know, what are you without, but what do you already have that we can build on? What do you already have that you can be grateful for and, and maximize that? Because people don't have problems because of the things that they don't have. They have problems because they're not even considering or having any gratitude for what they do have. Quite often, that's true. Um, I'm amazed at how many people will allow their self-talk to go into um, almost like a pity party of poor old me. I don't have this. I don't have that. While yes. you know, while they have a roof over their head and a car in the driveway and a job and people who love them and and um, a steady supply of food and all the basic necessities of life and the freedom to practice religion and take on a, a, a you know. A, career of your choice and so many more things that um, other people would just love to have but don't yes yes a lot of things that get taken for granted and um, that, that that brings me to another question right because I feel like a lot of people they they grasp onto these things uh, not just the the things that they practice or the things that they do have but onto their identities and they attempt to validate themselves through through certain things and i remember we we were discussing the concept of self on the zen stoic dojo and so what my question is is from your perspective and what you've learned with buddhism is what is your definition of self and how does one create more self awareness that's a really good question, and um, the answer is going to be, uh, I think, a little unusual, but it's, a, it's, it's grounded in my understanding of the Eastern view. So let me, let me yes. see what I can do with that question. So self-awareness. In order to actually grow self-awareness, you have to first become aware of what you are not. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and that's like a bit of a head scratcher. What do you mean what I am not? Okay. <laughs> well, let me explain to, um, to your listeners what they are not. Too many people identify with physical things or thoughts, 
and tie their identity to those things. And, and funny enough, as human beings, we can tie our identity to almost anything. So we can tie our identity to our wealth, to our status. We can tie our identity to our our circle of friends. We can tie our identity to a number in a bank account. Um, These are more sort of external things. We can also tie our identity completely to a thought. Okay. Yes. Um, So the thought might be, well, in my case, I was born in Canada. I'm Canadian. Well, Mm -hmm. at this moment in time, I happen to be a citizen of Canada. So from that perspective, yes. But when I start identifying to my nationality to the point where I use it to differentiate me, good, Mm -hmm. from them, not good, simply because Mm -hmm. of a conceptual idea, my nationality, um, then I create I create essentially conflict um, or, you know, the, uh, the justification for conflict because, well, if you're not like me, you're one of those. And um, the more I build my identity around me and my idea of who I am, the more I exclude other people. And so this is, um, and, and this is of course, uh, from a large scale perspective, it's completely false thinking because, you know, again, Canada as a country has only been around for, 150 years. So who were were Canadians before we were constituted as a country? Um, We were still human beings. We were, you know, we came from various parts of the world. Um, Mm -hmm. The way I like to joke about it as a Canadian is just an immigrant with seniority. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, (laughs) Well, you know, so maybe I've been here three generations and somebody else has been here two generations. So what? Mm-hmm. You know, none of that, none of those distinctions really matter. And the reason I say they don't really matter is because if you tie yourself to a thing, there will be yes. in the past a point in time where you weren't that thing. And there will become in the future another point in time when you are no longer that thing. Mm-hmm. So if I take my nationality, for, exi- for example, um, you know, I was born in um, Toronto. And I was brought home, but I didn't know I was a Canadian. My parents fed me this narrative about the country that I live in, um, yes. about the pros and cons and the, you know, the, this whole story about the country that I live in. And, and as a little kid, of course, I bought into it. And, as, and this sort of thing happens all the time. But I've had the good fortune to travel at least a little bit. Um, I get into the States a lot, which I really enjoy, and uh, overseas occasionally, which I also enjoy. And the more you just look at people, the more you understand that people have, you know, it's kind of like human beings and gorillas. We're 97% the same. So why do we get so worked up over that 3% difference? Yes. It doesn't really make any sense. So I tend to view myself as being somebody who lives in Canada, but I am not inherently Canadian. I love that you said that just because I've never, I've never had a huge attachment to the idea of national pride. Right. I have, I have national gratitude and happiness for being, uh, because I'm a dual citizen between Canada and us. So I'm very fortunate in that, in that, in that regard. and, And I'm grateful for it, but it's not the, it's not the same level as I completely identify with this and justify my existence by it. And I've never had that notion. And, Every time I've told somebody that, <laughs> it's, they've always looked at me strange. But I, I think this is a, this is a good lesson to sure. to bring to the surface. 
Well, if I could take it one step further, so we examine the idea, somebody might go, well, you were born in Canada, therefore you were Canadian. But I believe in the Buddhist approach to existence, which means um, I was reborn into Canada. Where was I before I was born? You know, where, what, what body did I exist in, in what part of the world in my previous life? What body will I take in my next life? You yes. know, um, I could end up, depending on the karma that ripens when I die, I could end up anywhere. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, I don't get too wrapped up in it. Am I grateful for being in a developed Western country where rule of law and opportunity and education and, you know, and so on exist? Absolutely. I'm immensely grateful. Um, yes. And that's about what it means to me. It's that's very interesting. I wonder what the uh, kind of the social climate would look like if there was more a prioritization of national gratitude over national pride. <laughs> Just uh, it's something that makes you wonder with this type of a conversation. Well, yeah, I I I practice gratitude in general. I am yes. So the Eastern approach to gratitude is actually kind of interesting. And if you don't mind, I'd like to take us down that path. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. <laughs> in the Eastern approach, you are grateful to everybody, mm-hmm. even the person who just flipped you off in traffic. Yes. <laughs> and the, <laughs> no, seriously. And the reason you're grateful to everybody is because people interact with you. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when they interact with you, they show you through their own interactions um, what their actions um, cause them. So if somebody, you know, if you do something and, you know, maybe you cut somebody off in traffic, completely unintentional, and they flip you off, what that says about them is, is that their mind is receptive to um, basically anger, that it's very easily triggered by anger, that anger then that they develop from that is projected outwards and in 90% of the time, whatever you project outwards comes back to you. So yes. what they're doing by projecting anger is creating the circumstances for which they experience a massive amount of external anger and they would just end up becoming embittered and uh, n- and basically hardened to the world because every time they turn around, not realizing that it's because of their own projection, they see anger and hostility and all of this sort of thing. And a perfect example of that is if I did not have the mind to cut that person off, but I did anyway, mm-hmm. if they perceive it through a mind of anger, then to them, I've just, you know, I've just, um, you know, insulted them or, you know, I've challenged them in some way. Where yes. none of that existed in my mind. It was purely a fabrication of their view of the world. <laughs> so even, I like that. <laughs> even very negative people can become your teacher. Yes. So they, I, I always tell tell this to clients, same exact thing. You know, your the people that upset you most sometimes are some of your greatest teachers. Yes, that's absolutely true because it, it shows you if they upset you, then it shows you a weakness in yourself. Correct. But even if they don't upset you, you can see how anger makes other people suffer. And so that can give you additional, um, basically, motivation to help Mm -hmm. tame anger within yourself because you have clear examples of the ongoing suffering that others have when they don't tame anger. Yes. uh, No, uh, that's that's very interesting. And I wonder what you think of this concept 
one thing that I've always uh, discussed with uh, students and clients in the past is whenever they're complaining about another person in their life, that there's like a consistent problem that continuously comes up. Uh, one thing that we share with clients to consider is that everyone else around them is a mirror, so to speak, that everything that someone does mm -hmm. is a projection of what's inside and everything you notice and that triggers you emotionally is a reflection of what is inside. Therefore, sometimes the things that you hate most in others are the things that you've either failed to deal with in your life or let go of to some degree. I would agree with that. I take a slightly different perspective though. Yes. Um, I, okay. I look at things because I've been on both sides of this one and I spent most of my life on the wrong side. So uh, mm -hmm. hear me on this one. Sure. Um, reactive versus proactive. What you what you learn, um, or what I've learned is pretty much what you've just said, which is most people will give you back exactly what you gave them. Mm -hmm. Probably nine out of 10. And I'm, I'm just pulling a number out of the air. So it could be more, could be less. Mm -hmm. um, I would suggest that from an emotionally spiritual perspective, less developed people will function as mirrors. Mm -hmm. Um, and more aware people will function, I like to use the analogy of a flashlight. And so what happens is if I go through life as a mirror, then I simply respond to whatever I get in the way that arises within me, which is usually how I judge the situation. And it's mostly one of, of indifference or anger and occasional bits of happiness. Yes. Okay. Um, on the other hand, or sorry, what I do, if I become aware of my, my own doing that, what I, what I come to understand is I am under everybody else's control. My mood is determined by the weather. It's determined by whether somebody else had a, had a um, um, harsh word with their spouse before they got in the car and drove aggressively. It's determined yes. by whether somebody else is, you know, by, it's determined by everybody but me. So yes. what that says is I am not in control of my life. Mm. Right? I am not in control of my life because all these things trigger me and yes. go. And I feel like I'm just sort of just being pulled here and there by um by whatever's going on and I have no control. And then you understand yeah, it's, it's everyone else's actions. <laughs> but then you understand that you do have control when you take some time to separate what happens to you to how you choose to respond to it. So yes. when somebody cuts you off in traffic, wave, give them the space. Who cares? It's not like you're going to get to work any faster or that the three seconds you save by driving aggressively is going to materially change your day. It's not a competition. You just want to get to work or wherever it is you're going. Yes. Understand that a lot of people um, because society, the, the messages that we get through mass media are predominantly negative. You're not adequate. You're not good enough. You're not this. You're not that. But if you buy our product, you could be, which, of course, is a falsity because if that worked, all the other stuff that I bought in the past would have made me immensely happy, and I'm not. <laughs> Correct. And um, it's funny that people forget that whole part when yeah. that's the general um, messaging that's that's getting across there. Yeah, but if I just choose to be 
you know what, if I just choose not to buy into their drama, I just choose to be, you know, have, have a good day, you know, regardless of external circumstances. Somebody can grump at me and, and I understand they're having a good day and I can do one of two things. I can grump back at them via mirror and just pile it on. Or I can say, you know what, Bob, I'm really sorry. Um, absolutely, you go first. And then what happens is I defuse Bob's anger. And if I do that enough, I can turn Bob into a friend. Yes. You know, but through empathy, it's not a manipulation. And this is the point that's really important is I'm not trying to manipulate Bob just so I can show how I have influence over this poor guy. I can just yes. go, you know what? if Bob's having a hard day, I can throw him a kind word. I can give him a smile. I can let him go first. I can do whatever it is within reason you know, provided I'm not giving up something of myself that I don't feel I should give up to just yes. not perpetuate Bob's negativity. And so therein lies one of the Eastern um, approaches. Um, so, for example, in the martial arts, um, from an Eastern point of view, you have no enemies. Right. Because an enemy or a friend is simply an appearance to mind. I view this person as an enemy. Somebody else, that person's mother views them as the most cherished, valued, loved thing in the world. Who's right? Mm. <laughs> and That's the a very interesting, interesting idea. I, I like the way you're thinking there, especially because I have an example from martial arts, but I'm going to let you finish on this point. Okay. So the, the point is, is that the perception of that person as an enemy is just a thought in my head. There was a time when I didn't think that person was an enemy. Maybe I didn't even know they existed. And depending on how I choose to interact with them, and I extend some empathy, maybe I give them some help, maybe, you know, I just treat them like a human being like we all deserve. And they yes. come around and suddenly they start treating me like a human being. And then I learn more about this person and we find out what we have in common. And suddenly we're great friends. So yes. was that person really an enemy or was that just an appearance to mind? I'd say it, the latter. Exactly. <laughs> and and yes. even, even if Bob and I are great friends, if I reflect back onto Bob, the negativity that he sent me, all I'm doing is creating the causes for him to give me more suffering. So yes. even if my view is purely selfish, I should be nice to Bob. Why? Because I create the future causes for Bob to be either less harsh to me or to actually start being nice to me. And there's one less hassle I have to deal with in the future. Yes. I, and I, I think that's such a, a profound way of looking at it, especially because at the end of the day, it, nothing someone does is ever personal to you specifically. And what I've learned is that people are not necessarily responding to their environment, the circumstances, or the people in it for that matter, but more so they're responding to their own internal representations and filters uh, to the world. And yeah. so if those internal representations and filters become enabled by your reaction, then they perpetuate. But if you give an opposite reaction that is more in line with being virtuous or being kind to, to someone else when they're expecting anger or nastiness in return, it, it breaks that pattern, right? It, it, it kind of it messes it up. <laughs> it absolutely does. If the person is a mirror, mm -hmm. in other words, they primarily give back what they get. Yes. And every time you give them something positive, they'll start to give you back a little bit of positive. And it takes time because habitual patterns are hard to break. Yes. And so what will happen is the first time they might just snark at me or they might, you know, grunt or they might treat me indifferently. So what? Mm -hmm. I was nice. 
you know, I can walk away with a smile on my face. I don't have to buy into whatever drama the other person has. The next time I see them, do it again, do it again, do it again. If the person's a mirror, if they're operating as a mirror, which is a better way to say it, eventually they'll start calling me out. Hey, Larry, how's it going? No, nice. Hey, Bob, what'd you do on the weekend? Well, I did this. Oh, that sounds interesting. Tell me more. Yes. Um, that sort of thing. And then what happens is you end up in situations where everybody goes, well, you know, grumpy Bob this and grumpy Bob that. And that's, and you could honestly say, Bob's not grumpy. Every time I talk to Bob, he's a good guy. Yes. <laughs> it, it's so true. I, I used to experience this. I remember I, I used to work as a waiter uh, many years back. And mm-hmm. I, I worked in, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Larry, but there, in Florida, there's an area called Boca Raton. Yes. And Boca is basically where all the retirees go, where pretty much everybody who's made a boatload of money goes to retire and hang out, especially during the winter. It's where all the snowbirds go, the people mm-hmm. that can afford to live that type of lifestyle. So sometimes you'll get people who are more so on the entitled side of the spectrum or the snobby if you if you will and that particular area it seems to be a concentrated area of this so every person that i was working with used to say oh the people here they're you know they're rude they're nasty they're this they're that um they always complain um you know they're going to be mean to you so basically just be ready for it as as a waiter (laughs) and uh, for the entire year that i worked as a waiter i never had one experience like that and it was mainly because I would show up and do my part and be kind no matter what and show zero frustration with their requests. And so therefore I never got that, which they were, my my coworkers were having me expect to experience. And it's, it's very much in line with what you're saying here. And it reminds me of uh, there's a Marcus Aurelius quote that I think is really, really interesting and very much aligned with this. But it's this idea where he says, I do what is mine to do, and the rest does not disturb me. So in essence, if we just stay in our lane and do our part, um, and this can be in a variety of situations, if it's in a family dynamic, right? You do your part as a good son or as a good father or as a good brother, and that's what you focus on. In that case where I was working, I did my part as being a good waiter. And nothing more. I didn't let any anybody else disturb me because that's what I was there to do. And I think it's very much in line with this perspective here of you know showing up and showing up as you want to, not based on the responses or the actions of others. Yeah, in and, and I don't disagree. Um, I will generalize a little bit. Buddhism has a um, a lot to say about the concept of equanimity, mm. fairness. Okay. Yes. Um, maintain, and you'll hear this in the martial arts as well, maintaining your center. Yes. Well, your emotional center needs to be maintained. Where you're, If you think about martial arts, you know, you're surrounding yourself by uh, opponents and potentially hostile, emotionally challenging situations mm-hmm. um, so that you can learn to deal with them. If you get drawn into the emotional challenge situation and you collapse in a, you know, a, a bag of sobbing, you know, just mass on the floor, you lose. Yes. <laughs> on the other hand, if you can stand and just um, observe the situation unfold with equanimity and respond skillfully as the, as the situation demands, mm-hmm. then what happens is you have 
the full, you know, the, the full set of your skills, abilities, resources that you can bring to bear. As soon yes. as you let the emotional side of it or the physical side of it overwhelm you, then your opponent has won because the rest of it's just a fait accompli. You know, yes. it's going to happen. Um, so if you can take somebody's mind away from something, um, you know, even if it's just to go to the restaurant and be grumpy to the waiter, <laughs> um, <laughs> then, you know, you've maintained your equanimity. And my guess is, is in your scenario, Victor, you probably had some repeat customers who wanted to sit in your area because they were, they appreciated how you interacted with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they probably, that was definitely. they probably couldn't even tell you why. No. <laughs> No, no particular reason. And, and I think it's that, that concept of equanimity is, is extremely important um, in that example, as well as the martial arts. I, you, you've reminded me of this uh, several times throughout our conversation. So I'll bring it up at this point because <laughs> I think it's, uh, there's some relevance here. But just a, a couple days ago, I was in a jujitsu class. And this particular gym, the way that it's designed it's it's a big gym with a ton of people in it, but it's super hot because it's summertime, it's humid, and it's in the basement. So there's not a lot of ventilation. So it's an environment that I'm not typically used to, and none of my conditioning seemed to have been holding up, uh, for, at least for the past week, right? I was, I was getting gassed within the first minute of training. Mm -hmm. And on Saturday, I remember being in there, and we were going hard. And in my mind, I was like, I'm so tired. I'm this and that. I was having my own pity party in my head. And I had this moment <laughs> where it got to like, it, it got to like a critical mass of, uh, of these complaints I had internally. And something just snapped. And I went into a zone where I was completely unemotional. I was simply doing my part, doing my thing. I didn't see an opponent. I saw a shape in front of me. I saw a thing that was in front of me that I, that I needed to maneuver around and get past and do my part in the equation. And once this happened, I was not getting tired. I didn't have any internal dialogue. I was simply present in what I was doing. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what, what may have happened there? Because <laughs> it, it, it seemed like it happened in a snap. Like it, it, it built to a critical mass and then everything changed in a moment. Yeah, no self. Yes, it was literally a moment of no self where yourself, yes. you got to the point where yourself was no longer serving you. You became aware that it didn't serve you and you just dropped it. And at the moment you dropped it, all those preconceived notions, all the grumbles, all the, the limitations just fell away with it. And you were able to be fully present in that moment without distraction and yes. do what the situation called for. And that is how one becomes a more effective martial artist. Yes, I notice that state um, when it does come up is usually when everything seems to be going perfectly as planned. And you don't <laughs> well, know why. <laughs> that's, you, so in, in the martial arts, you have to get out of your head. Yes. Because what happens, you can't think your way through a problem. You have to actually rely on your, your more base um, training your your body memories, your um, your just you know, your your sort of natural reaction to the situation, to um, to 
you know, to accomplish what you want. Um, so the martial arts is, is very good at repetition, repeti- repetition, repetition, and that's good for physical conditioning, but it's also good for building body memories. And body yes. memories are how you will actually, in a real uh, situation, body memories are what will determine um, whether you are effective at dealing this, with the situation or whether um, your training is, I'm just going to say, incomplete. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, and that's precisely what the experience was like. And it, it just makes you realize and, and come back to this, this whole point of what we were talking about here, that when you drop all the things that are not actually yourself, then who you are actually shines through whatever it is that you're doing in that moment. Yes. And the things that are not yourself are ultimately the conceptualizations, these labels that you've thrown on your identity and all of the stories that you've associated to those labels. So yeah. it's really interesting how that, that all that, that allows you to flow. It allows you to be you. It does real sense. And I'd, I'd like to, to um, just sort of elaborate on that a little bit. There's a, a wonderful Zen, I think it's a charcoal drawing, where you see an old man carrying, stooped over carrying a heavy bag. Yes. Okay. That is a Zen picture. I looked at it for years going, what, what, what's the significance of this? Until I finally understood the heavy bag that this person is carrying is all the conceptual thoughts that they hold dear to that are weighing that person down, preventing them from moving freely and naturally, mm-hmm. that they refuse to drop. Sometimes the simplest thing in the world is the hardest to drop. Yes. And that it's, you can literally collapse under the weight of all of these things. And um, you see it all the time in people who have, um, you know, real challenges coping because they've built this huge elaborate story in their own mind about who they are. And when other people don't buy into it or when it doesn't prove, you know, based on their real life circumstances to be valid, then they have this conflict. They either have to drop this story about themselves um, to be true to who they are or they have to deny who they really are by holding on to this story about themselves. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because that story seems as though, uh, at least when it's built up to that degree, it seems as though it's happening to you. It's, uh, or in other words, it's, it's what life has, the cards that life has dealt you. And this reminds me, and, and I think it's a, a, a good segue here to a concept that you talked about uh, when answering a question about fate on the Zen Stoic Dojo, where you talked about this idea of anti-fate. And it's pretty much for those who've never heard this term before, um, which I don't think they have, (laughs) because it was the first time I heard it too. (laughs) Um, But it's this idea that you create your own existence and those stories are ultimately things that you've created and forgot that you've created them. Yes. And so if you can go into that concept of creating your own existence and this idea of anti-fate. Okay. So I remember being in high school at English class, uh, reading Shakespearean books because I was forced to. Uh, and uh, the, um, the uh, characters in the, in the stories uh, were basically lamenting their fate. And yes. even as a, a you know, uh, middle teen high school kid, I just shook my head and went, this is just really, really, really dumb. And 
and I couldn't really articulate why it was dumb, but I had this 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 deep-seated feeling that it was just incredibly silly. And it wasn't until that I it wasn't until I'd spent some time in Eastern philosophy that I came to understand that my view is more aligned with the Eastern view, that you are where you are, when you are, who you are, and every other thing you can think of about you are because of past causes that you created. Mm-hmm. So you are here and now, including with the parents you have, the children you have, the job you have, the uh, attitude you have is 100% of your own creation. How, yes. do you cre- how do you create it? By choosing the thoughts you choose to hold, mm-hmm. by choosing to abandon the thoughts that perhaps you shouldn't abandon, by choosing to repeat the same behaviors over and over again um, and the same thoughts over and over again to the point where they become so familiar, they become so familiar that you mistakenly view them as an inherent part of yourself. Yes. As a, you, in, you, so the, the example I like to use in that is one that I think anybody who's ever driven has experienced, <laughs> which is the road rage specialist. Yes. So if you have somebody who's been driving and they just respond to what they perceive as negativity and with practice and energy and effort and mindfulness, they practice their road rage so that, you know, if you accidentally cut them off or whatever, man, they're on the horn and they're, you know, giving you helpful uh, hand gestures and things like that. <laughs> and, but the amount of energy they project is just frightening. Yes, absolutely. It is. Well, you know what? That's just practice. Mm. You choose what to th- what to think. You give energy energy to your thought. You practice it over and over again. And one of our you know one of our greatest gifts or our greatest burdens is that our mind gets good at what we practice. Our mind is yes. just a tool. So if we choose to practice road rage, we can become a black belt in road rage. Likewise, mm. if we choose to practice virtue, we can develop the same intensity of energy towards, um, you know, developing loving kindness towards the people um, of this world. Yes. It's, it's the same energy. It's just two sides of it. I can practice on one thing that's going to make my life miserable, or I can practice on something else that's going to make my life helpful. It's entirely a choice, mm-hmm. except it's not a choice until I know it's a choice. <laughs> Interesting. Does that make yes. any sense? It absolutely does. It's uh, it's the whole. I mean, the way that I teach it is, I teach the the, I define it as what is called object consciousness. Which okay. Basically, there uh, our thoughts, we uh, ourselves and our thoughts have a subject object relationship. In yes. other words, we are the subject who is aware of these thoughts. It, ultimately, the awareness that observes the human experience, so to speak. Yes. And whatever it is that we are observing is the object. So when we become object conscious. Essentially what that means is that we've associated so much to that which we are observing that we begin to identify as that thing. And the example that is most relatable to this, um, that makes the most sense because people have an experience of this and they can identify it and be aware of it, is when they watch a movie. 
and they begin to associate and identify with the character so much so that they experience the emotions of that character. If that character is about to go into an embarrassing situation, you know, they start to cringe or if they're going to go into a scary situation, you know, they start to develop a genuine fear and worry for that character as if it is them. And we do that same thing with thoughts and emotions. It's, it's like you were saying earlier in this conversation, we can grasp and associate so much into a single thought that we begin to view ourselves as that thing. That's and correct. to once you're aware that, oh, this is just a thing that I'm observing versus me, then there's that, that moment where you can detach from it and have an objective view where there is the possibility of a change if you don't continuously feed and practice that thing more and more and more. Right. Yeah. It has to be the awareness and, and the pivot in, in the actions. Yes, this, this is absolutely true. Um, if I can take that a little bit further, the first, the first thing you have to do is you have to understand that your current response is not an inherent part of you. It is just a learned trait. Right. The second thing you have to learn is that there are triggers that can predict the uh, emergence, the manifestation of that learned trait. Mm-hmm. The third one is, is that you have to learn that you have to buy into the whole process in order yes. for the process to flow through. And so if you become aware that these things are all occurring, then what you can do is you can just mentally step back and watch. Yes. And if you mentally put some distance between you and the thought, then what happens is this thought starts to lose its power. If you then inject a little bit of time between when the trigger occurs and when the reaction starts to uh, occur, you can observe the process even more clearly. Yes. And then once you become aware that it's just a um, conditioned response to a situation and that your mind doesn't have to buy into the response, then you can objectively assess the situation, ask yourself, is my current response serving me or harming me? If it's harming me, I can stop doing it. If it's serving me, perhaps I can learn how to do it better. Yes. Um, But the separation of a thought and that which is aware of the thought is critical. Mm. Because we are not our thoughts. We yes. simply experience our thoughts. The, in Buddhism, they use the, um, the analogy of the sky. The clouds are not the sky, and the sky is not the clouds. The clouds partially obscure the sky. The sky remains, and the clouds are impermanent. When causes and conditions come, you get clouds. And when the yes. causes and conditions are no longer present, the clouds dissipate, and the sky is back. So the sky is our mind and the clouds are our thoughts. And, you know, we could have white clouds or dark clouds. They're just thoughts. They're impermanent. Based on causes and conditions, they show up. As long as we give them energy, they stay. And when we deny them our attention, they disappear. Mm. And we're still there. We were there before the thought and we will be there after the thought. Yes. So bringing this out into the open I find is hugely empowering because suddenly there's all these behaviors that you can objectively assess and then start to modify. And when you modify your behaviors and your thought process, how you approach things, your whole life starts to change because you've taken ownership of the process. Yes. And that that's, that's ultimately what it's all about. I, I believe that the very act of noticing that 
you are the observer rather than the thing that you've been observing for so long is the first step in taking any, any kind of ownership whatsoever is noticing that, oh, okay, I'm not this thing. I'm in fact the one observing it. And now that I know that I'm not this thing, if I continue to do it, I know it's a choice and yes. one can take responsibility of that, um, which I think is super important. So before we wrap up here, Larry, I have one question for you that I, I think will be important and, and very interesting. So if we could leave our listeners here uh, with one lesson or even a koan from Zen Buddhism, which one would you choose to, to leave here? Oh boy, um, I'm not a big fan of koans. And the reason for that is because quite often a koan only makes sense if you have all the contextual background in which the, uh, the person is given the koan. And as Westerners, we don't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what ends up happening is you end up with a head scratcher um, yes. with no resolution because you don't have the framework with which to res- resolve it. Um, yes. Actually, what I would do is I would go back to what we were just discussing and I would um, elaborate just a little bit further. Yes, please do. Okay. Everything is your fault is the most powerful thing you can ever hear. Because if it's somebody else's fault, it's out of your control. And you can do nothing but endure it. If it's your fault, then you can observe it. You can watch your current behaviors. You can uh, put some distance between your mind and the current behaviors. You can contemplate other behaviors. You can contemplate um, the effects. Um, You can redirect your energies in ways that suit you better. So by making everything your fault and showing gratitude to everybody, you actually create the foundation to take full control over your life. I absolutely love that. Incredibly powerful lesson. So I, I walk around thinking, hmm, something just negative happened to me. It must be my fault. And then I stop and I think about how is it I could have possibly caused that to occur? And then it's within my power to change it. I, I love that. It, that. That creates a sense of ownership that will allow anybody to transform any situation that they feel like they are quote unquote stuck in is uh-huh. to think in that way. If, if, you, if anybody here is listening to this conversation, you feel stuck, take that exercise, try it on for a week and start looking at everything as if it is your fault so that you can take that objective responsibility and actually do something about it versus just find yourself having to endure it. So Larry, thank you so much for that. Okay. Well, you're very welcome. Um, I'm just going to hang on that one last word you said, transform. If it's your fault, you can transform it. So thank you very much for the invitation. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Larry. We're definitely looking forward to having you back on this podcast um, if, you, if you would like, because <laughs> I, I think you, you and I can go on for hours. So, so this has been I would really enjoy an absolute that. pleasure. Yes, 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 indeed. So, and uh, for all the members of the Zen Stoic Dojo, um, I'll be posting this into the actual dojo so that you guys can leave your comments and thoughts, um, as well as questions that uh, I, either myself or Larry uh, could answer. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If this helped you or if this is something that you feel would 
be of service or help another person that you know, definitely share this with them. Um, we look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode of the Zen Stoic Podcast. Larry, thank you so much for being here. Victor, you're most welcome. It was a real pleasure. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.